This morning, we're going to be in verses 23 through 32 of Romans chapter 11. And in this passage, we're going to kind of look with a kind of a wide angle lens at God's redemptive plan for all of history and how he is going to save both Jew and Gentile and his plans for each of them. And it's my prayer that as we unpack this passage this morning and and, and look at God's redemptive plan for history is that we would be awestruck, that we would be awestruck by the glory and grace of God in his divine plan to redeem lost and broken humanity and reconcile lost and broken humanity back to himself. This is a passage of Scripture that undoubtedly there are numerous interpretations of, perhaps even, well, I know even in this room. But this is not given to the church to be a point of division. This is to given to the church to be a point of unity. And so we're not going to dive down into to the, to the intricacies of these eschatological flavors that we might all have. Instead, we're going to elevate the glory and grace of God in redeeming lost humanity back to himself. And so that's what I hope we're all struck with as we unpack this passage together. So read along with me, follow along in your copy of the scriptures, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, reading down through verse 32. Paul says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to hold in our hands this which we know to be the very breath of our God. We thank you for this passage that you set before us this morning. And Lord, may you give us understanding. May you give us a hunger for the truth that is here. May you bring us to a place of feasting on 
this truth as we understand more of who you are and what your plan is in redemptive history. And God, may that lead, may that lead us to our, our knees. May that draw us to such humble praise and adoration of you as a result of what we find in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you noticed in this passage, there's a lot of those same plural pronouns that we've been seeing all throughout this chapter. They, them, these. We've seen it all throughout this chapter, and here in these nine verses, we see it 13 more times. Now, we noted uh, the last couple of weeks as we, we've been looking through uh, from verse 11 to verse 22, uh, we've noted that these plural pronouns, there, them, these, and such, refer to ethnic Israel. And in particular now, the ethnic Israel that's been cut off from this olive branch, cut off from the people of God. Um, in the passage that we looked at last week, Paul introduced the metaphor of the olive tree. And we said as we unpack that metaphor that the roots of that metaphor re- represented the patriarchs, the, the patriarchs of the Israeli faith, of the Jewish faith, the, the covenants and promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the beginning of Israel, the beginning of ethnic Israel. So they, this is the roots that he's referring to. And then we also said that there were branches on this tree in this metaphor, two kinds of branches that he mentions. There are the natural branches and the unnatural branches. The, the ethnic Israel branches that are natural to the olive tree and the Gentile, the non-Jewish um, the non-ethnic Israel branches that are unnatural, that there are wild and not part of that cultivated olive tree that are grafted in by faith to this olive tree. But we also noted that the olive tree itself represented the people of God, those from both Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus. This is the people of God. So that they, throughout this chapter, referred to ethnic Israel, and in particular now, those natural branches, those ethnic Israelites who had been cut off from the olive tree. And why had they been cut off? Verse 20 told us they were cut off because of unbelief, because of their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of the gospel, and so consequently they were cut off from the people of God. They were cut off from that olive tree. And then Paul went on in the closing verses of what we covered last week, verses 21 and 22, to use that as a means of warning us, of, of warning Gentiles against that danger ourselves. He says, listen, if, if God didn't spare the natural branches because of their unbelief, what makes you think that he will spare you if you refuse to believe as well? And we, and we said that this was, not, this was a not, not a knock against the perseverance of saints. This, this wasn't teaching that we could lose our salvation, but it was teaching us that if we don't genuinely trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross as our one and only hope, and sufficient hope at that, that we can be rescued from what we deserve because Jesus died in our place and rose again, if we're not placing all of our hope and faith and trust in Christ alone to save us from what we deserve, then we have no confidence whatsoever that we too won't be cut off from this tree. Regardless of how good we are, regardless of how religious we are and how often we come to church, 
So that was a very clear warning to Gentiles. But now, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul reverses the logic. And he explains this in a positive sense. So instead of using their lack of faith, the lack of faith of the ethnic Israelites who had been cut off from the olive tree, instead of using their lack of faith as a warning for Gentiles, now Paul uses their faith that they are grafted back in as an encouragement to the Gentiles. So he says in verse 23 there, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So this morning I want to look at just four kind of basic truths that Paul gives us in this passage. And two of them begin in verse 23. In verse 23 there are two things that Paul says. First of all, he says God has the power to graft them in again. Second of all, he says that if they're going to be grafted in again, it's going to be by faith in Jesus Christ. So from that, we get our, our, the two of, our, of the four truths that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, God has the power to save. God alone has the power to save. Secondly, that those who are saved are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. And I love that these two truths here are held up in parallel in verse 23. Because they truly are parallel truths that we must hold together at the same time. Both the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. Both of these are true. And we don't elevate one at the expense of the other. And we don't do that because Paul doesn't do that. What I believe we see Paul doing in Romans 9 through 11 is he's he's emphasizing the sovereignty of God, but not at the expense of compromising the necessity of faith. And we've seen this all throughout these three chapters here, 9 through 11, that have been so hard and so rigorous for us to walk through. We've seen it all throughout this. In chapter 9, what was he talking about? He was talking about the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, an unconditional election that according to his good pleasure and according to his sovereign grace, he chose to pass over some and to set his saving love on others. And if you weren't here during that, as we unpack chapter 9, I would encourage you to go back on our website or podcast or whatever it is and listen Listen to those messages on chapter 9 in particular as I sought my best to explain the beauty of this doctrine and quite honestly the necessity of God electing some to salvation because otherwise none would be saved because we all stand under the righteous wrath of God. We all deserve to be under the judgment of God because of our rebellion against the king. So he graciously chose us because if he didn't, then none of us would ever choose him. That's what chapter 9 was all about. It's about God's sovereignty and salvation. But I love how Paul followed that up immediately in chapter 10 with the necessity of faith. Now that wasn't the first time, chapter 10 wasn't the first time that Paul talked about the necessity of faith. He's been talking about this all along, all along in Romans. Ever since the The middle of chapter 3, after he got finished telling us the bad news in chapters 1 and 2, that we have no righteousness of our own, and and because we don't have any righteousness, we are not justified to stand before a holy God here or, or in the hereafter. 
Then in chapter 3, he says, but there's a righteousness of God that's been made manifest, and it's a righteousness of God that is ours by faith alone. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given his righteousness, his perfect following of the law, credited to our account as if it is our own, because it is, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags and attempts at righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul's been talking about this all along, but I love here how after in chapter 9, he lays out the doctrine of unconditional election, that it is God who saves, that he is sovereign in salvation, and he alone is, is justified in passing over some and setting his saving love on others. I love how immediately after that, he spends all of chapter 10 talking about the necessity of faith. He says in in, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The necessity of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And just a few verses later, in verse 13, he said, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then then he says, he goes on to say, but how will they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So chapter 10 was all about the necessity of believing. And remember we've said that, that the Greek word for believing is simply the verb form of the Greek word for faith. And so it's all about faithing. It's all about placing faith in Jesus, the necessity of faith in Christ alone to be justified before God. So we hold these two truths up as simultaneous truths. The sovereignty of God in salvation and his right as God, his sovereign right in unconditional election, and in an election that is not conditioned on anything or anyone. But at the very same time, we hold up the simultaneous and parallel truth of the necessity of faith, the necessity of responding to the gospel in repentance and in faith. We need both of those. They are both essential. Paul does the same here in verse 23. He emphasizes God's sovereignty and salvation. He says God has the power to graft them in again. Who has the power to graft these natural branches that have been cut off because of unbelief? Who has the power to graft them in again? Not them, not us, not the Gentiles, not Paul, but God and God alone. God has the power to graft them in again. And so Paul emphasizes the sovereignty of God in, in salvation, but not in such a way that he compromises the necessity of faith. If they're grafted in again, it is only by faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. After all, what is the ground of God grafting them back in it? back in again. It's faith in Jesus. He says there in, in, in this verse, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. Their faith in Jesus Christ is the ground of God grafting them back in again because it is the ground of the righteousness of Jesus being credited to their account. Another way of putting it is that it is the means, their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope, is the means of them being grafted back in to this olive tree of God by the power of God. 
Because after all, what is the power of God to save anyone? What, what, is, what is the power of God to save? Paul addressed this at the very beginning of this letter, at the outset of his gospel presentation in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God to save. To save who? To everyone who believes. To everyone who faiths in Jesus. And then he adds, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. So the gospel is, is the power of God to save. And he saves everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And so as we affirm the sovereignty of God in salvation in chapter 9 and his unconditional election, we don't do so at the expense of compromising the necessity of faith. These are two essential and simultaneous truths that we hold to. And if there's tension there, don't try to work that tension out. Just let it be. Paul goes on to explain this further in verse 24. He says, For if you, speaking of the Gentiles to whom he's writing, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, ethnic Israelites, will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? We need to bear in mind here that Part of what Paul is doing in this passage, passage is exhorting his Roman Gentile believers to not write off the Jews. In the passage prior to this, he did it in a negative sense. In, in verses 17 through 22, Paul was exhorting them in a negative sense. He, he told them, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant over the natural branches. Because, listen, they are cut off because of unbelief, and you will be too if you don't trust in Christ, if you don't believe. But now Paul exhorts them in a positive sense. He says, listen, don't write them off. Don't, don't give up on them. Don't stop sharing the gospel with these ethnic Israelites. Because if God could take an unnatural branch like you from an uncultivated olive tree... And now those of you who are horticulturalists know this is impossible. And that is why God grafting anybody into his olive tree is impossible. Only by God is it, is it, is it possible. But Paul is saying, listen, if he can take an unnatural olive branch like you Gentiles from an uncultivated olive tree, wild, far from the Mount of Olives where you got the, the cultivated olive trees, that actually produce fruit, that produce the olives, that produce the olive oil, if he can take you, these unnatural branches, and graft you into that olive tree, how much more, he says, will he be able to graft in these natural branches, these ethnic Jews, if they don't persist in their unbelief and they come to faith in Jesus Christ? If God has the power to graft you in, Paul seems to say, how much more does he have the power to graft them in? So don't give up on these ethnic Israelites. Don't give up on them. Even though they're rejecting Jesus. And they were in Paul's day. 
Even though they're rejecting the gospel, even though they're rejecting you because of Jesus, don't give up on them and don't stop sharing the gospel with them. If God can graft you into the olive tree, how much more can he graft them in as well? I think as we step back, this should give us great courage and encouragement in sharing the gospel with our lost friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. Each of us, each of us has people in our lives whom we love deeply and care about deeply, but they don't share the same hope that we have in Christ as our Redeemer. And some of them are very hard to the gospel and some of them don't even want to listen to you. They, they, they will reject it outright. Listen, God has the power to save. I think that's what we're to pull away from this. God alone has the power to save. We're not soul winners. He is. He's the one who has the power to save. Jew and Gentile alike, no matter how hard their exterior, God has the power to save. And his power to save is the gospel. And his means of saving them is the proclamation of the gospel, to which those whom he has elected will respond in faith and be saved. So keep sharing the gospel with them. Keep setting before them the feast of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is God who saves, and God has the power to do that. Now there's a third truth here that I want us to consider from this, uh, from the verses that we've looked at thus far. And that is that there is only one people of God. I think this is important for us to clarify here because some have gotten a little bit off stray here. There is only one people of God. How many olive trees do we see in chapter 11? It's just one, right? There are a couple of different kinds of branches there are natural branches rep representing ethnic Israel, and there are unnatural branches represent, representing Gentiles, but it's only one tree. And, and we've said that the tree itself represents the people of God, so there is only one people of God here. So we're not talking about two groups of believers, the Gentiles who are the people of God because they place their faith in Jesus Christ and therefore inherit the promises of God in a spiritual sense, and ethnic Israelites who um, become the people of God by their physical descendants of, being physical de descendants of Abraham and following the Torah, and that they inherit the promises of God in some kind of material or physical sense. No, there's only one people of God that Paul speaks about here. And there's always been, this is critical, there's always been only one people of God. Paul talked about earlier as the Jewish remnant. The remnant who had faith in a coming Messiah. We learned about this in chapter 4. After, in chapter 3, as, as Paul laid out the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that we receive the righteousness that we need to be made right before God. Then he gives in chapter 4 the example of Abraham. That Abraham looked forward to the good news that was promised of a Messiah who would die for his people and would 
he put his trust in him. He said, even Abraham was justified not by the law. He wasn't justified by his circumcision. He wasn't justified by anything that he did in his life. He was justified by faith in a promised Messiah. So there's always been this remnant, as Paul has been talking about, this Israel within an Israel, as he mentioned in chapter 9. He said, not all Israel is Israel. There's a physical Israel. There's a national Israel. But not all that are part of that are a part of this inner Israel. This, this Israel that he calls the spiritual Israel, the Israel of faith, the Israel of the promise. It's always been there. And now, by faith in a crucified and risen Savior, now Gentiles too can be grafted into this same olive tree. And so that means we see continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. We see continuity here. What was the people of God in the Old Testament, referred to specifically by Paul as spiritual Israel or the Israel of promise, that people of God is now, the sti- is now still the same people of God in the New Testament, Testament, but now it's referred to as the church. Now it's referred to as the church, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, whom God has saved by grace through faith in his son Jesus. So it's not as though the church has replaced Israel. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is saying. The church has not replaced Israel as the covenant people of God, But that which was the covenant people of God, the remnant of Israel, now also includes Gentiles whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And now the same people of God in the New Testament is referred to as the church, the body of Christ, the spiritual Israel. So one church, one people, one olive tree. And consequently, one means of being grafted into this olive tree faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. So there's only one people of God. The fourth truth from this passage, and this is what we're going to spend the bulk of our time and the rest of our time in this passage on, is that God is not finished with ethnic Israel. God's not finished. I don't don't see how we can read this passage and see that, yeah, he's done. He's done with Israel. As he continues to talk about Israel and what's going to happen, God is not finished with ethnic Israel. This is, what, this is what Paul says in the remainder of this passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, there's going to be lots of different interpretations on the degree to which God is not finished with Israel. And so we may not all, even in this room, agree on the degree to which God is not finished with Israel. But I think we can at least agree on that, that he's not finished with Israel. So this truth is nothing new for us in chapter 11. We've seen it from the very first verse, that God's not finished with Israel. He hasn't rejected his people. In fact, we've seen it every week that we've been in chapter 11. This is the fifth sermon on, in chapter 11, and we've seen it, or at least connected to it, each week. But now all of those previous teachings in this passage come to its climax in verses 25 and 26. Look what he says. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And in this, and, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul says three things here in verses 25 through 26. First of all, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. So there's a mystery here. And for Paul, when he talks about a mystery, he's not talking about an Agatha Christie novel or some kind of thing that you have to look for clues for. He's simply referring to something that was hidden but is now revealed. And so he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this thing that was hidden but, but is now revealed. I don't, I don't want you to be unaware of this. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And so I think part of what this tells us is that we can't approach this difficult passage and say, you know what, it could mean a lot of different things, so it really doesn't matter. Let's don't dive into it. There's no, there's no reason for us to try to unpack this because, you know, smarter people than me have never figured this out, and so why should we try? I don't think that's in accord with what Paul intends here. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, and so let me lay it out for you, he says. The second thing that Paul says here is he, he tells them why. He tells them why he doesn't want them to be unaware of this mystery. And the reason is lest you be wise in your own eyes, lest you become wise in your own sight. So whatever this mystery is about, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but whatever this mystery is, if it remains a mystery, if it remains unrevealed, if, if we remain unaware of its truth, then we run the risk of, a, of becoming conceited, and prideful and arrogant over these natural branches, we run the risk of becoming wise in our own sight. Again, Paul is trying to humble the Roman Gentile believers in this passage. In verse 18 from last week, he said, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the natural branches. And then in verse 20, he says, don't become proud, but fear and he gives the warning that you too might be cut off because of unbelief. Now again in verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. So what is this mystery that Paul wants his readers to see the revelation of so that it will keep them from becoming prideful and arrogant and wise in their own sight? Well, that's the third thing that Paul says in these two verses. He explains the mystery. And the mystery is that God is not finished with Israel. Or to put it more specifically, directly from verse 26, all Israel will be saved. How does that get fleshed out? Well, look at it. He says, he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. He's talking about ethnic Israel again. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, we talked about this sense of hardening earlier in chapter 11. In verse 7, he says, Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking. What, they, what were they seeking? He, he told us they were seeking the righteousness of God without which they could not be justified before him. But they failed to obtain it. Why? Because they were trying to seek it through the law, as he told us. They were trying to seek it through the law instead of trying to seek it through faith in Jesus. And so they failed to obtain it. But then he goes on in verse 7 of chapter 11 to say, the elect obtained it. How'd they obtain it? By faith in Jesus. So the elect obtained it, but then he goes on and says, the rest were hardened. 
And then he goes on to explain what hardening was. He says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, this confusion, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. But Paul tells us here that this hardening over ethnic Israel was a partial hardening. And I believe that it's partial in the sense that it is limited in time. And I think that because of what he says next. He says, until, and that's a time word, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, which we said before refers to the full number, <clears throat> excuse me, the full number of Gentiles whom God is going to save, saves. After the fullness of Gentiles, all those whom God is going to save, get saved by faith in Jesus Christ. When that occurs, at, and I believe that's pointing to sometime in the future, we'll talk about that in a moment, but when that happens, then this partial hardening will be lifted. And so the idea is there's a, there's a hardening that comes on ethnic Israel for a time until the fullness of Gentiles comes in or grafted into the olive tree. And when that happens, at the conclusion of that, then that lifting will be, that, that hardening will be lifted. And what's going to happen? He tells us. Paul says, in this way all Israel will be saved. In this way, meaning by consequence by consequence of the lifting of the hardening on ethnic Israel, by consequence of that lifting, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul doesn't say here how all Israel will be saved, but he doesn't need to, right? He's covered that exhaustively elsewhere, even in this chapter. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, although I can't completely paint the picture of exactly how this is going to work and what this is going to look like and what's going to precipitate this and lead up to this, I believe this points to a time in the future when all of ethnic Israel, alive at some point in the future, will come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and how glorious that will be. Now let me explain to you why I think it's in the future. Two reasons. First of all, because the fullness of Gentiles has not yet come in. Right? We interpret that to be, I interpret that to be the full number of Gentiles whom God is going to save being saved. God is still working on this. He is still taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, all peoples, pantata ethne, hasn't yet been completed. That work is still going on today. There are still nations, there are still peoples whom God intends to save and bring into the kingdom of God and graft into this olive tree. And so that work is still ongoing. And because that, that, that hasn't happened yet, that co the completion of that work hasn't happened yet, this is something that is pointing to something that is going to happen in the future. The second reason why I believe this is pointing to something in the future is because of the rest of verse 26 that we haven't read yet, and verse 27. These are quotes from Isaiah the prophet, and I believe are referring to the second coming of Christ. Look at those words. He says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I think this is one of those examples where Isaiah the prophet is given a vision a revelation from God about 
God's plan for the future. But his perspective of what God reveals about the future is kind of like us when we are standing and looking at a mountain range far off in the distance. And from our perspective where we stand, as we look at that mountain range, it appears as though it's just one line of mountains connected one to the other. But what we don't see from our perspective is that those mountains are separated by huge valleys. And in some cases, those mountain peaks could be miles apart from one another. This is often what we find in biblical prophecy. Much of prophetic scripture is like this, where prophets are given a vision, a a perspective of the full landscape of God's salvation history. But they do not see that the events that will take place in that salvation history are sometimes separated by hundreds and perhaps thousands of years. And they don't see that because of their perspective when that prophecy and when that vision is given to them. And so we see here, the deliverer will come from Zion. Yes, absolutely. That points to Jesus coming from Jerusalem as he carries the cross, dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. Absolutely, it points to that. But the fulfillment of that has not yet occurred because Sin has not been, or ungodliness has not been banished from Jacob in this sense. So not only is it referring to a deliverer that come from an earthly Zion, but a deliverer will come back from a heavenly Zion and will, when he returns, banish all ungodliness from Jacob, from Jerusalem. So I believe this is referring to the second coming of Christ. And many scholars, not all, but many scholars will say the same. This is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Before he sets up either his millennial kingdom or his eternal state and the age to come, whichever your eschatological flavor prefers, whatever that is, what immediately precedes it, what immediately precedes his second coming is this massive conversion of ethnic Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's been pointing to all throughout this chapter, I believe. And now he brings it all to a climax. Look at verse 12. We we saw this in verse 12. He says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So the trespass and the failure of Israel was their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of the gospel. And he says, listen, if that meant good stuff for the Gentiles because now salvation through the gospel comes to Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion referring to what I believe is this massive conversion of Jews before the second coming of Christ that occurs after the full inclusion of Gentiles has come in. We also saw it in verse 15, just a few verses later. He says, for if their rejection means the, reje- means the reconciliation of the world, their rejection, referring to the, the ethnic Israel's rejection of the gospel, if that means reconciliation is now possible for all those who are non-Jews, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Their acceptance, referring to their, in a corporate sense, not an individual sense, but their corporate sense of acceptance one day of Jesus as Messiah that that will usher in the resurrection and life from the dead. Now Paul says the same thing here in verses 25 and 26. After the fullness of Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. 
Now, there are different ways of understanding when this takes place, and there are certainly different ways of interpreting all Israel here, what Paul means by the phrase all Israel. Some will say that what is being described, not only here in verses 25 and 26, but all throughout chapter 11, is not pointing to something that's going to happen in the future, but it's pointing to something that's happening in Paul's day, and it's something that's happening all throughout the church age. So in that, in that view, the full inclusion of Jews referred to in verse 12 that we just read about, and their acceptance of the gospel that we read about in verse 15, that all of these simply refer to Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of when it happens, both in Paul's day and all throughout the church age. And so then you come to verse 25 and 26, and the reading becomes, in this way all Israel be, will be saved, which, which would then mean, according to that interpretation, that this is how ethnic Israelites will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not pointing, it's pointing to how they come to Christ. It's not pointing to a point in time when they will come to Christ in mass in the future. And I will have to admit, there are a lot of people that are, all of them are smarter than me, that affirm that interpretation. So I've got to leave room for it. And, and, and I, I walk very gingerly saying that that is not the case. But I do walk gingerly and say that that's not the case. I believe that this is pointing to a time in the future for the reasons that I've given you. When all of ethnic Israel, alive at some point in the future, will come to faith in Jesus Christ right before the second coming of Jesus, and this will usher in the resurrection of the dead. And then we can talk about whether what comes next. But I believe that that's what it's talking about. Conversely, there are some who interpret all Israel to refer to the church. Now, I will stand a little bit, little, a little bit more solidly against that. I don't think this is talking about all Israel. I don't, I don't find that argument convincing because all of Paul's references all throughout this chapter to Israel have been talking about ethnic Israel, including the verse just prior to verse 26. In verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That can't be the church. Partial hardening didn't come on the church. So they, they, this, that can't refer to the church. So I, I think it's highly unlikely that Paul would use that very same word in the very next verse to refer to something completely different, the church, as opposed to something else. So the bottom line here is that God is not finished with ethnic Israel. He's got a plan. He's got a plan for saving ethnic Israelites. And that plan includes grafting some of them in now, during Paul's day, during our day, continuing until the Great Commission is fulfilled as they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe this is pointing to a time later, before Jesus returns, when there will be a massive grafting in of God's people, the ethnic Jews, and they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. The remainder of this passage that we're looking at this morning really just gives a summary of what we looked, we've looked at up to this point in this chapter. Verse 28 says, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So Paul puts these two statements in parallel to one another in order to teach us something. He says, first of all, as regards the gospel, they, the ethnic Israelites, are enemies for your sake. In other words, ethnic Israelites as a corporate entity, again, we're not talking about individuals here, we're talking about a corporate entity, a people, they are enemies of the gospel, 
because of their trespass, their rejection of the gospel, their failure to obtain what they were seeking because they sought it through following the law instead of through faith. So because of their rejection of the gospel and their rejection of Jesus as the Son of God, they're enemies of the gospel. But this served a purpose. And what was that purpose? He told us in verse 11, through their trespass, trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So it was for our sake. But then Paul says in the second half of this verse, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So those who were enemies of the gospel were all along at the same time beloved. These who were enemies of the gospel were also beloved for the sake of or on account of their forefathers, which again is a reference to the patriarchs. So because of God's covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, ethnic Israel has always had a special place in God's heart. Even during this time of partial hardening, even as they continue to reject Jesus, even as they continue to reject the gospel, they corporately, not individually, but corporately as a people, are beloved by God because of the promises to the forefathers, such that he has a plan for them corporately. And this plan of his was fleshed out in the Old Testament promises and covenants. And this is what Paul means when in verse 29 he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So the calling of God refers to God's election of them as a people, corporately, And the gifts are those advantages that they have as his chosen people. If you recall, back in the beginning of chapter 9, Paul listed those advantages that they had as the people of God. He said, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Those advantages belong to ethnic Israel. And Paul says these gifts and and, and this calling, this election of them as a people is irrevocable. In other words, he will bring all of that stuff to pass for that Israel within an Israel. It's just that now it will include believing Gentiles. And then we have in verses 30, 30 and 31, Paul is still summarizing here his teaching For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. That's that's verses 11 and 12 again, right? Through their trespass, salvation comes to the Gentiles. Now, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by by the mercy shown to you, that's verses 11 and 12 again, right? Because of the grafting in of Gentiles into this Jewish tree, they become what? They become jealous. They become jealous, and now, and now they, they, they want this. And so by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And then Paul closes this section with verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is one of those places where we have to be careful about the word all, don't we? can't mean all individually. There's no way it can mean all individually. It goes against everything else that Paul says. Paul is not here affirming universalism. He doesn't save all. He doesn't have mercy on all in this sense. So instead, he's referring here to all corporately, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, Jews 
and all nations. Panta ta ethne. Another way to understand this all is to consider how we sometimes use hyperbole when we say things like the whole town came out to watch the parade. We don't mean every person individually, right? But we mean that the crowd that gathered to watch the, the, the parade was representative of the town. And so too, in the same way, all peoples, all nations will be represented in the kingdom of God. And church, this has been God's plan all along. From the very beginning, from his very first promise and covenant with Abraham, his promise that he would make him into a great nation, Israel, ethnic Israel, and that from him and from that nation, he would be a blessing to all the nations, pantata ethne, all the nations of the earth. This has always been his plan. So how do we... How do we draw this to a close and seek to bring application to our lives? I think, first of all, like we said at the beginning, we are to be awestruck by the glory and grace of God in redeeming lost humanity back to himself. It is a miracle on the part of God that he would save anyone. Let us affirm together and be awestruck by this, that God has the power to save lost and broken people. So persevere, church, and sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with your lost neighbors and coworkers and friends and family. Persevere in that because God has the power to save. Secondly, be humble. Especially we as, as Gentile, non-Jewish believers, be humble because it is a Jewish tree that we have been grafted into. And rejoice that one day God will bring the full number, whatever that is and however that works out, he will bring in the full number of Gentiles and ethnic Israelites to faith in Jesus Christ as he draws a, pulls a drawstring on all of eternity. And then finally, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, I can't think of a better day to do that than today. I can't think of a better time to do that than now. Because if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, then you're not connected to this olive tree. Can we just be honest and face the facts that that means you're not part of the, of the people of God? Because you don't have the righteousness that you need to make yourself right before God. None of us do. But that's why he sent Jesus. That's why he sent his son to die on a cross so that those who place their hope, their faith in him, their sin gets placed on his back and he pays for it once for all. And his righteousness is put on your shoulders by faith in him so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your filthy rags and your your yours and mine feeble and unsuccessful attempts at righteousness. Instead, he sees the righteousness, the pure, saving righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't you want that? God has the power to save you. Will you come to faith in Jesus Christ? It's not about walking an aisle, raising your hand, marking your card, getting dunked. It's not about any of that. It's about simply in the quietness of your heart saying, Lord Jesus, I cannot save myself And I recognize that I am hopelessly lost, both in this life and in the life to come. But I place my hope and my trust in your son as my only and yet sufficient hope 
that I can be saved and that I can be reconciled to you in this life and in the life to come. Will you come to faith in Jesus? Will you come to faith in Jesus? Let's pray.